Silence and Answers. How do you effectively share your faith with a hardened skeptic? Often Christians are intimidated from sharing their faith when they meet someone who is argumentative or appears to have ready arguments against Christianity. How do we effectively share our faith with friends and family members who are hostile to the message of Christ? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author and teacher in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. At a recent conference held at the Wintersburg Church in Los Angeles, California, Pat presented practical ways to engage a hostile skeptic using the four killer questions. Let's join Pat now as he presents practical methods of sharing Christ when you find yourself in a dialogue with a hostile individual. Back in the day, I did karate. And karate invites the small, fast guy you know, which was fine with me. So most of my opponents were my size. But now that I'm old and the joints are going, you know, I had to pick up another martial art. And the one I picked up, of course, is jiu-jitsu. Now, jiu-jitsu, however, attracts the big guy, all right, because it's a lot of grappling and chokes and arm bars and all that. So the guys that come out are the big Samoan and the big Hawaiian guys. And so now, I'm always grappling with guys twice my size, half my age, all right? And because there's a lot of Hawaiians there, and Samoans, they gave me a Hawaiian name. You know, I thought they were going to give me the name Old Man or something, but they gave me the name Koa Maikalani. It means warrior from heaven. But if things go as they do, they're going to change my name to warrior in the hospital. All the punishment I'm taking if I don't get any better. But... Well, actually, I don't always lose, you know, I win sometimes. But in jiu-jitsu, I'm most often fighting an opponent who I know I cannot overpower. And in matches like these, it'd be foolish for me to try to match up strength for strength against these guys. You know, uh, one of my most feared opponents back in the day was a guy named John Harsh. He was six feet, 300 pounds. All right? And of course, he's going to take you down, and he's going to get on top of you. And one of the things we hated about John Harsh is that when he got on top, he would open up his gi on purpose and smother you like that, and suffocate you. Cheating. But we learned how to turn the tables on him. You know, when he opens up his gi and he just smothers your face in it, he had a hairy chest, so he's pull on his head. <laughs> yeah. Desperate times call for desperate <laughs> But often in these matches, I know these guys are going to take me down. And then I put them in a position called the guard. And where they unknowingly use up a lot of their strength trying to escape. Use up a lot of their strength while they're trying to figure out how to escape. And as they're figuring out how to escape, it often gives the guy at the bottom an opportunity to turn the tables and it is then I can have the upper hand and reverse the situation, mount my opponents even if they are much bigger and much stronger. The ability to turn the tables, that's what makes jiu-jitsu one of the most deadliest and effective form of martial arts. Now, in sharing Christ, we often find ourselves in conversations with a really tough skeptic. Right? Often we may find ourselves overmatched here. In this seminar, I want to give you some practical skills you can use to effectively engage a hostile adversary and turn the tables 
So you can get your friend to listen and hopefully have a more engaging and fruitful discussion. First, I want you to understand that evangelism is a process. It's not a one-time thing. If you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4, the disciples are surprised seeing how many Samaritans are coming to a saving knowledge of God through his son Jesus Christ. And Jesus states to them this in verse 37. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Jesus taught evangelism is a process. There is a time of sowing seeds, there is a time of watering, and some of us have the fortunate experience of a time of reaping the harvest. You see, the ultimate goal of evangelism is what? Bringing someone to Christ. But the immediate goal is what? Bring them one step closer. For example, you know, I'm on a softball team, once again, playing with guys half my age, twice my size. You know, it's a scary thing. They always put me at shortstop, you know, maybe because I'm short. But, you know, you see these big Hawaiian and Samoan guys, and you see the slow pitch coming in, they're just ready to tear into it, right? And there you are at shortstop, you know. Now, in softball, when we bat, our ultimate goal is what? Bring in runs. Get to home plate. The immediate goal is what? Get on base. Get to first. Alright? So when we're up there, swinging for the fences, we often don't do that well. And our coach often has to remind us, just get on base. Just get on base. Hit and run. That's how we're going to score. And in evangelism, that's the immediate goal. Get them one step closer. This is the more achievable goal and it's less intimidating. You don't have to hit the home run every time. You bring them one step closer to Christ. For example, if you're working with an atheist, okay, an ardent atheist, he may not go all the way and accept Christ. Your goal is to bring him one step closer. Your goal is to bring the atheist to a point where he can say, all right, it's reasonable that there is a God. Okay? You brought him one step closer. All right? If you're Working with a guy who thinks Christians are just absolutely ignorant, uneducated, irrational people. And for the first time, he meets someone who can articulate a good defense for the Christian faith. That's often bringing them one step closer. Many skeptics have never run into a Christian who can articulate a well-reasoned defense for the Christian faith. Sometimes, bringing them one step closer is to expose the weaknesses of the beliefs that they're holding on to that are keeping them from faith in Christ. So the ultimate goal is to bring them to Christ. The immediate goal is to bring them one step closer. Now, our mission in evangelism, in engaging a lost world for Christ, is to persuade people to our position. We are to present evidence and well-reasoned arguments to persuade 
people to our position. This requires the use of reason and logical thinking. You see, God does not bypass the mind to speak to the heart. A non-believer has to be able to say, okay, it's reasonable, before he will surrender his life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, we persuade people all the time by pointing out and refuting false beliefs and presenting our case. Jesus did so all the time. In Matthew chapter 22, when the Sadducees came to Christ and said they did not believe in a resurrection, and they presented Christ with a problem here. He said, okay, a man dies and his wife must marry the brother. Then that brother dies, she marries all seven brothers at the resurrection, which they do not believe in. Whose wife is she going to be? And there Jesus said, you do not know the scriptures, nor the power of God. In Acts chapter 17, verses 2 through 4, it states, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with the Jews, with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. Paul would go in and reason with the Jews to persuade them and to faith in Jesus Christ. First Peter 3.15, Peter writes, But set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts, Always be prepared to give an answer, an apologia, to everyone who asks you the reason, the logos, a well-reasoned, rational explanation for the hope you have within you, but to always do this with gentleness and respect. Often I hear from Christians, well, you cannot reason anyone into the kingdom. Incorrect. We do so all the time. Often I hear, all you need is love and the gospel. The Holy Spirit does the rest. But Jesus and the apostles, if you look at their presentations, always presented powerful evidence and well-reasoned arguments to make their case. And the Holy Spirit uses the evidence, uses the scriptures, okay, to touch the heart and bring people to Christ. Now, when sharing your faith with people, people are often at different stages of coming to Christ. Some are ready for the harvest. He or she is ready and eager to hear the gospel. This kind of person is open and responsive. He's willing to hear the evidence and willing to entertain the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are others, though, who pose a more difficult challenge. Some are more hardened. Or he or she may be a very hardened skeptic. So this requires more skill to effectively engage this person. The person with the uh, hardened heart is often not responsive and can often be very argumentative. I'm sure people are coming into your mind as I speak. He often puts you on the defensive by bombarding you with all kinds of questions. And... Even if you give them answers, they often balk and dismiss your answers. It's in situations like these, you must learn how to turn the tables. Now, our goal in turning the tables is this. 
We want to put you back in the driver's seat. Through your questions, you can direct the conversation. You can expose the faulty thinking of the other person. Second, you make the other person do all the work. Instead of you constantly presenting and defending your case and constantly him dismissing or balking at the reasons you're presenting, you need to learn to put him on the defensive and make him present his case. And as he does, you listen and you point out the flaws in his particular thinking or belief system. And through this process, you help the other person see the weakness of their own position. And if Christianity is true, then there will be flaws in the worldview positions that will eventually arise in the conversation. And you can point it out. And by asking good questions and learning the techniques of how to turn the tables, you diffuse an emotional situation, but you're still able okay, to persuade the other person. Now, here are three ways that I've been taught to turn the tables in a conversation when dealing with a hardened skeptic. Now, remember this. These techniques can also be used on you. So you better have some answers when these questions come back to you. When a person makes a statement like, I don't believe in God because science has shown God does not exist. When a person makes a statement like that, challenge him with the five killer questions. All right? You're outlining me, say, four. I have a asterisk, a fifth one in there. And now, the advantage of this technique is this. It takes charge of the situation by asking pointed questions instead of making a statement. Questions are less likely to make the other person defensive or argumentative. And questions help you learn the other person's beliefs. Questions help you guide the discussion where you want it to go without being pushy. And if you read the Gospels, Jesus often used this technique. When they challenged Jesus, he would just turn around and ask them a question. And then he'd point out their flaws in their particular belief system. Now, often, if you're dealing with a hardened skeptic, you just ask the five killer questions. You point out the flaws in their arguments, and often you can just leave it right at that. Say, well, I'll think about that. You know, and you put the, what we call the pebble in the shoe. And they go home and they think about it and think about it and realize the flaws in their position. And next time you talk to them, they'll be a lot more open to what you have to say. And they may come to you and say, all right, how do you know your position's correct? And now they'll be ready to listen to you. Okay? Now, the five killer questions are this. What do you mean by that? How did you come to your conclusion? How do you know it's true? Where did you get your information? And what if you're wrong? Okay? Now, the first question what do you mean by that? In other words, clearly explain your position to me, please. Okay, this helps you understand what the person believes. And it helps you understand his position clearly. And it forces him to explain it in his own words. And often, when you ask this question, it reveals his lack of understanding of his own position. For example, just the other day I had lunch with a 
young man who attends this church, but he sits in the back. Well, he said he's an agnostic. An agnostic doesn't know if God exists or not. All right? But he sits in the back and he says, I keep a low profile because I'm not a believer here. All right? So we were sitting there having a wonderful lunch. And I first asked him, I said, well, tell me what you believe. And he said, well, I don't believe there is a God because of all the evil that exists in the world. And my first question was, what do you mean by that? He said, well, I mean, there's all this evil and wickedness going on. How can there be a God with all this evil? I said, what do you mean by evil? And he was stumped. He said, well, evil is imposing your will on someone else. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, you know, when you force someone else to do something they don't want to do. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, you take away their freedom. That's evil. And I said, so if your daughter wants to eat candy all the time, it's evil for you to say, to impose your will and say, no, honey, you better eat vegetables in a balanced diet. That's wrong. That's evil, right? And he said, well, uh, no. And if atheism is true, Darwinism is true, right? Survival of the fittest. The stronger always impose their will on the weaker. And that's the way the stronger the species survives. So why is that evil? And he thought about it for a while. He said, well, and he finally looked at me and said, well, how do you define evil? I thought, I looked at him and said, I thought you'd never ask. You know? And I said, well, evil is the absence of the good that should be there. If I slaughter a race of people, there's an absence of love and a respect for human life that should be there. That's not there. And he said, okay, I can buy into that. But I have a question for you, Pat. I said, what? He goes, what do you mean by good? I said, I thought you'd never ask. I said, there can't be an objective evil unless there's an objective universal standard of good, which we all acknowledge, from which we have departed. C.S. Lewis said, as an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how did I know what was cruel and unjust? You can't know a crooked line unless you know what a straight line is. Where had I got this idea of just and unjust? And I said, there's a perfect standard that you and I agree to and abide by. Rape is wrong in every culture. Adultery is wrong in every culture. Murder is wrong in every culture. Where does that standard come from? We thought about it for a while. It doesn't come from nature. Okay, a tsunami will kill innocent children as well as wicked criminals. It doesn't come from the animal world. And he said, all right, I can acknowledge that there is a God who set this moral standard. All right? We brought him one step closer. From agnostic, who said, I don't know there's a God, to by the end of the conversation, who saying, okay, there is a God. All right, we brought him one step closer, simply by asking that question. Second question, how did you come to that conclusion? This helps you understand the basis for their beliefs. And you don't just let someone state their position, you ask them for the evidence. What's the evidence? that supports your claim. You see, the burden of proof isn't always on the Christian. You've got to put the burden of proof back on them. See if they can give you good reasons for why they believe or if they just feel strongly about something. It's not always your job to defeat their claims or argue them, but their job to defend theirs. And while listening to their explanation, ask, is it plausible? Okay? Is it probable? And see if their reasons and evidence are credible or not. 
For example, we were at Mount Hermon the other year, and there was a delightful Jewish young man who came, and he was an atheist. And I asked him, I said, you know, we were sitting down, and I said, so? I said, let's start from being. Do you believe in God? And he said, well, I think all religion is the source of evil and conflict in this world. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, I think just religion is evil. And I said, well, how did you come to that conclusion? And he said, well, look at the Crusades. He said, I've studied the Crusades quite a bit. The incredible atrocities that were created. And my studies, deep studies of the Crusades show that religion is evil. And I said, okay, which crusade? There's seven. Several of them never made it to the, you know, the Holy Land. Which one? And he said, oh. I said, well, never mind. How long did the crusades last in the scope of Christian church history? He said, well, I guess I really don't know about the crusades. You know, I said, oh. So how did you come to your conclusion? And he looked, he said, well, I guess I'm really not that sure. You know, and I said, oh, okay, well, I said, could I explain a little bit to you how the crusades came about? He said, oh, okay. And so we had a great discussion. And in the end, he came to realize, well, his belief about religion being evil was false. Now, the next question you ask is related to the second one. And it's this. How do you know it's true? Similar to the previous question, you're finding out why they believe and how good is their evidence. Often for the first time, they need to clearly state why they are so sure of their position. And often they discover they do not have solid grounds for their position. For example, you know, I was on a plane speaking with a Buddhist. We were talking and we got on the topic of reincarnation. He said, well, when you die, you come back, you know, in a different form, all of that, until you break the cycle and enter into nirvana. And the question I asked him was, how do you know that's true? And he, no one had ever asked him that before, and he said, well, no one knows what happens after death. No one can possibly know. He said, you're a Christian, how do you know? And I said, well, thought you'd never asked. I said, the reason I know is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he looked at me and said, how do you know that's true? And boom, we went into the defense of the resurrection. And when we were done, you could see, you know, the Buddhist priest, he was in his full garb, really beginning to think through the issue. Fourth, where did you get your information? This allows you to evaluate the source of the person's information and often the person may not have a reliable source but he has never been asked for example a month ago a man was talking to me and said the four gospels are not the oldest gospels are not the earliest records of Christ there are many other secret gospels found in Egypt that predate the gospels so I asked him I said where did you get this information? And he said, well, everybody knows that. And I said, well, I'm not too familiar with that. Where did you get that information? And he kind of hemmed and hawed and everything. And I said, so how reliable is your information? Where did you get your information? And finally, he reluctantly admitted he got it from the novel The Da Vinci Code. 
Okay. Well, there you go. You know, I said, do you believe everything you read in, in a fiction novel? And the final question, what if you're wrong? The implications of the other worldviews and religions are not so bad. Okay? If Hinduism, I don't make it, I'm simply reincarnated and I can try again. In Buddhism, I go through the cycle of rebirth and try again. In atheism, I go six feet under and that's it. Extinction. But the implications of rejecting Christ are quite severe. Alright? And what if you're wrong? Then you spend eternity separated from God forever in a place called hell. This one I use only if a person is not taking uh, the issue seriously or it's a good way to lead them with a lingering thought. This concludes part one of Pat's seminar, Equipping Christians to Engage Tough Skeptics. I hope you receive practical tools to use when you are sharing your faith in Christ. If you missed any part of this message, log on at evidenceandanswers.org and you can listen to the entire study and enjoy other great resources right there on the site. Pat is the director of the Pacific Apologetics Center, a subsidiary ministry of the Bible Institute of Hawaii. Pat's ministry relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by Pat's teaching, please support him in prayer. And would you consider giving a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org? Evidence and Answers Radio Show is a ministry of the Pacific Apologetics Center. Join us again next week for part two of this message right here on Evidence and Answers. Oh,